Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. This morning being Mother's Day, I want to specifically share um, a message with the mothers. Now, um, not all of us here are mothers, but all of us have mothers. Uh, That's something we all share in common. There's no one here who doesn't have a mother. (laughs) We all have mothers. Um, And um, I'm going to be specifically sharing with the mothers, but if you're not a mother, please don't switch off because what I'm sharing applies to all of us. Um, Male or female, married or unmarried, you know, whether you have children or not, um, what I'm going to share applies to all of us. And and I'm I'm going to trust the Lord that, that He'll really speak to our hearts because um, we, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture from um, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 20, um, which really reveals not only mother's hearts, specifically there is a mother involved, and that's why I chose this passage, but it doesn't only reveal mother's hearts, it reveals all of our hearts uh, to us. And um, when we see our hearts, then we can ask the Lord to change our hearts and heal our hearts. Amen. So there, there's a picture of... Um, of my family, um, with Rochelle and our, our kids. And, um, you know, so I have firsthand experience of living in a house, not only being, growing up in a household where there's a mother, who um, I was uh, the second of five children, so my mom had to work hard. We were four boys and a girl. Um, we, um, I'm, I'm the smallest of the brothers. All my brothers are bigger than I am. Like Harry, he's the, he's the biggest of, every, of, of everyone, <laughs> taller and bigger and stronger than me. When, when we made chips, we took a whole, you know, seven kilogram pack of, of uh, potatoes and we peel it and make chips and polish the whole, the whole lot of it, okay? As we were, you know, teenagers and so on, we ate a lot. So my mom worked really hard, you know, as a mom. So I wasn't only raised in a house with a mom, but I live in a house with a mom now with, uh, with Rochelle and um, Mama Joyce, she also lives with us. And, um, you know, so I, I, ha- I have first-hand experience of, of how, what moms are like. And um, moms are amazing creatures. Um, <laughs> moms are creatures. They are created beings. That's what the word creature means, right? It's a created being. Moms are created by God, so... <laughs> And God, God really does, has given a special part of his heart to be revealed through to mothers and I think through mothers. So um, we're going to look at, at Matthew chapter 20 and I'm just going to read through the passage first and then I'm going to trust the Lord that he reveals, um, as, as I speak to mothers, that he reveals to all of us um, our hearts and the depths of our hearts. It says, when the mother, and there we have the mother involved, uh, of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus Um, with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him what do you want he asked she said grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom you don't know what you are asking Jesus said to them can you drink the cup I'm uh, going to drink we can they answered Jesus said to them you will indeed drink from the cup from, from my cup. But to sit at my right and, or left is not mine to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant, and I was very angry with the two brothers. And Jesus called uh, them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, um, the mother of the sons of Zebedee is actually mentioned twice in Matthew's gospel. This is the one place where she's mentioned, and later on we'll look at the second place where she's mentioned. And in this passage, it's all about serving and sacrificing. Okay? 
This is, that's what this passage is, is all about. And that's why this whole issue of position, sitting at the right hand or the left, um, and Jesus talking about the Gentiles and the rulers of the Gentiles having a certain position from which they exercise authority, from which they get people to serve them. Um, that's why this whole issue of position is there, because they have a certain view. The disciples, James and John, and their mother have a certain idea of what, it, what life ought to be life, like. Um, and that's why they ask for this, for this position. You see, they have this idea that it's better to be served than to serve. Okay? They have this idea that it's better to be served than to serve. And therefore, you must be in positions of authority so that you can get people to serve you. And therefore... Their mother asks for positions of authority for them so that people can serve them. And then Jesus comes and he throws the whole thing upside down. And he says, that's not how it works. Now, you might say as a mother, but, but you know, hang on, this doesn't apply to me because, you know, Jesus is not around anymore so that I can come and ask him all kinds of stuff like that. Yes, that's true. Jesus isn't physically around. But we still pray to him, don't we? And as mothers... You regularly bring your children before the Lord, don't you? And you regularly ask for stuff for them. And we know in our hearts, even though we can't maybe articulate it, we know that whatever this mother is asking for is not entirely right. There's something wrong with it. (laughs) And what I want you to see is that when we come to God in prayer and we ask for things for our children, Unless we fix what was wrong in her heart, which is also wrong most of the time in our hearts, we will also ask for the wrong things for our children. We will also pray for the wrong things for our children. So, firstly, I just want you to notice, uh, moms, I think you can relate to the situation. Um, Because... Mothers really have to serve. I mean, if there's one thing mothers have to do, it's serve and sacrifice. Okay, Jesus talked about serving. You know, the Son of Man, just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And then he talks about sacrificing and give his life as a ransom for many. Moms have to sacrifice. I mean, just the the whole birthing process is quite a sacrifice. Okay? Um, You know... uh, our, our children were all three of them born through cesarean section, um, and that was quite a sacrifice. That was quite intense, quite quite painful, and quite quite intense. Um, and you know, <laughs> I'm talking not for well. It was for me too. <laughs> it was for me too. <laughs> I, I I'm really scared of blood, so I was just sitting there looking at Rochelle's face, holding her hand, you know, and praying for her. <laughs> but it, but it was much more intense for Rochelle. Um, but and and likewise in a natural birth it's it's qu- it's quite intense you know I'm told <laughs> um, and it's a big sacrifice but the sacrifice doesn't stop with giving birth um, you know then you then you really have to serve you know you have this little baby and this little baby can do nothing for itself and you as a mother have to care for it and serve it and and um, I mean you feel like you 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 know. <laughs> doing the dirty work because it's like, you know, dirty underwear, dirty clothes. First is the dirty nappies that you have to change the whole time. And, uh, and it feels like your life is full of changing dirty underwear, you know. <laughs> it feels like you're, and, and I mean, I've seen videos of, of dads, you know, where they like put on these gas masks, you know, where, where they finally agree to, to sort of change a nappy and he's like, you know, with, with the bright tongs, you know, getting in there, you know, like... <laughs> You know, <laughs> so I do change nappies. You can ask my wife. I did, I did change nappies. Um, didn't always enjoy it. It's it's uh, dirty work, but it feels like your life is full of it. I mean, you 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 change those nappies, and a couple of hours later, you know, you have to change them again. You know, and it's just j- dirty, dirty underwear. And then, I mean, the worst is you know when 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 the kids start growing up and they start you start trying to potty train them. You know, then then you know when they have a little. A little accident, you know. If it's, if it's a number one, it's still all right. You know, but when it's a number two, oh my goodness, you know. <laughs> my wife still tries to save the undergarment. 
I'm like, no ways. I just put that thing in a plastic bag, tie it closed, and put it in the dustbin. I mean, <laughs> just throw it away, you know. Put it out of its misery, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to try and save the poor thing, you know. And then it's your husband's underwear that you have to pick up off the ground as well, you know. The dirty underwear, you know. And... Um, course, there was a time when uh, you may, might have found your husband's underwear quite exciting. But, uh, you know, after the first few kids and so on, you know, that, that sort of changes with time. And then it's just dirty underwear lying on the ground. And you have to, and you're like, wonder, wonder, you know, why? Doesn't he just pick it up and take three steps and throw it in the... And it feels like, you know, you're, and then you have to wash it. You have to hang it out to dry. You have to iron it. You have to fold it. You have to put it back in the cupboard. And then every few days that cycle repeats. So you're just serving, 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 you know. And... Uh, you know, if your heart's not on the right place, you can serve so much that you become discouraged and you become resentful about serving. You become fatigued and beaten down by serving. And you start thinking, it's better to be served than to serve. And therefore, it's better for my children to be served than to serve. And therefore, I'm going to ask for them to be given positions where they don't have to serve, but where they can be served. And, and it's not just mothers. It's not just this mother, you know, James and John's mother, and mothers in general that struggle with this. Clearly, everyone struggles with that. Because when the other ten disciples of Jesus hear about this, they're very upset. Why are they upset? They're not upset because they are all, you know, self-sacrificing and selfless and love to serve. And they, they're angry with James and John because, you know, they don't want to serve. No, they're angry because they want to sit at Jesus' left and right-hand side. They also want to be served. That's why they're so outraged and upset, you know. Who, how, how, how dare you come and take the place that I think I deserve and that I actually secretly want? Because I actually also want to be served. I don't want to serve. So it's not just James and John and their mother that want to be served rather than to serve. All the disciples. But Jesus takes it further and he says, it's not just you guys. It's the whole world. It says the rulers of the Gentiles, the rulers of the nations, lord it over them. In other words, they use their, their privilege and their position and their power to make people serve them. They lord it over them. They exercise authority. They use their position to get people to serve them. So Jesus says the whole world is like that. Now, before I, I look at the reasons why it's like that, let me just say this. You know, I, I don't know um, where you are. I think probably most of you are, or many of you are Christians. Some of you, you know, might not be Christians yet or you might still be sort of checking Christianity out. Um, I just want you to consider this for a while. You know, many people who are not Christians are skeptical about the Bible. And is the Bible the truth, you know? Is the New Testament accurate and true? And many people, you might have heard it said, would say, um, yeah, I know, you know, Jesus was a good teacher, a good moral teacher, but he didn't really do miracles. He didn't really rise from the dead. And then the church later on, decades after Jesus' death, you know, they made up these stories about the miracles and the resurrection and because they wanted to create a religion, you know, so that they can use this religion to get power so that they could get people to serve them. You've probably heard that. Anyone heard that? Was it just me who's heard that? I'm sure some of you have heard that. Think about this for a while. I mean, is that in the light of this passage, is that credible? Would the disciples, who, by the way, are the ones who wrote the New Testament make up stories that make them look so bad, make them look like a bunch of knuckleheads, a bunch of boneheads who are selfish and petty and self-absorbed. Would they make up stories like that and then write them? <laughs> no, I mean, that's not, that's not really credible. I mean, this, these stories are embarrassing to them. So what I'm trying to say is this rings true. You know, if the guys who wrote this are the boneheads of the story, you know, the guys who, who, who look stupid, <laughs> the clowns of the story, then it must be true, okay? So we can really believe this. We can really trust um, 
this as true as, as what really happened. Um, why do we want to be served rather than to serve? This, this passage gives us a few tips. It shows us not only the selfish request, the proud request of James and John and, and, and their mother, but it also shows us their hearts underneath it. And that's what I want to get at. And that's what this passage is trying to get at. So it says here um, that James and, and, and John's mo- the mother of, of the sons of Zebedee comes to Jesus and it says they ne- she kneels down. And, and the word used there in the Greek is, is literally proskuneo. You can translate it kneel down or worship. She worships Jesus. But then there's an interesting thing, and she asks, but what she asks for is not something that will glorify Jesus, but that will glorify her sons. Okay, in other words, what, what she's trying to do there, she's, she's worshiping, she's kneeling down, literally worshiping Jesus, but her worship is actually a means to an end. And that end is not glorifying Jesus, but glorifying her sons. In other words, she's sort of, in a sense, using Jesus as a means to an end. How often do we worship God and pray to God, but actually we're using God as a means to an end? We're praying for what we want. We're praying for what we want, actually, if we're honest with ourselves, more than we want God. Um, And Jesus exposes this. It says, um, Matthew writes that, that she asked a favor of Jesus. And he says, what do you want? And, and, and then she says, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. And then Jesus says something interesting. He says, you don't know. And he, and he puts it in the plural because he's speaking to her and her two sons. Because they also partially sort of probably got her up to this. He says, you do not know what you're asking for. But, but he changes the verb for asking. Uh, the one used in verse 20 over there which is just a normal word for asking. And he says, when he says, you don't know what you're asking for, he changes it from the active voice to the middle voice. English and Afrikaans and Zulu and so on don't have a middle voice. Middle voice is just reflexive. It means you don't know literally what you're asking for for yourselves. And he says to them, and he says to her, you're asking, but you're asking for yourself. Your asking is self-focused. Your asking is self-absorbed. Your asking is selfish. It comes out of a heart that is focused on you, not on me. On what you want, not what I want. Um, And in other words, here's what I'm trying to say. Let me just say it explicitly. We don't sin unless there's something going on in our hearts that causes us to sin. And what is that something going on in our hearts? Okay? St. Augustine, the, 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 the guy who lived in the 4th century, was a great man of God. He put it in this way. He said, all of our problems are disordered loves. Now, it's clear that, that she loved her sons. Okay? And, and, and Jesus is not faulting her for that. And, and she must have been a decent mother. I mean, after all, out of the 12 disciples, two are her sons. Okay? She's the only mother that has two sons represented amongst the 12 disciples. Okay, so she's clearly not a bad mother, you know. <laughs> the problem is not that she loves her sons, but the problem is that Jesus is revealing that she loves his sons more than she loves Jesus. She loves his sons more than she loves God. In other words, her sons are becoming an idol to her. And Augustine says, our problem in life is disordered loves. It's not that we love stuff and then try and get it, lust for it, desire it, and grasp for it, and then it causes us to sin. It's not that, that we love just the wrong things, but that we love the right things in the wrong way. Disordered loves um, means that we must love big things a lot and we must love little things a little. If you say to to your wife, 
Um, or, or you say to your friend, you know, I love my wife and I love my dog. <laughs> and I love to fish. <laughs> and I love cars. How's your wife going to feel about that? <laughs> Probably not too good. I mean, <laughs> she doesn't want to be mentioned as being loved in the same way as your dog and your fishing rod and your car. Okay? You're supposed to love your wife more than you love your dog and your fishing rod and your car. Okay? Now, in the same way, you're supposed to love God more than anything else. We're supposed to love God more than anything else. And our problem is often we don't. And her problem is that she doesn't. She loves her sons more than she loves God. She loves her sons more than she loves Jesus. And it shows in what she asks for. And the problem is not that she loves her sons too much. The problem is that she loves Jesus too little. When we have disordered loves, we idolize stuff. Um, When we love anything, an idol is anything that we love more than God. And here's the problem with an idol. If we love anything more than we love God, then we'll want that thing more than we want God. And we'll want, ultimately it will cause us to want to be served rather than to serve. And ultimately it will cause us to be in slavery, to be in captivity. Because our idols hold us captive. Let me, let me put it in a different way. Um, our, our desires, the word often used for sin is the word, in, in the Bible is the word epithemia, desire. But thumia means desire. Epithemia means over-desire. Like the epicenter of an earthquake is like the, 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 the place where the earthquake is at its most intense. Now, epithumia is a desire that's at its most intense. In other words, it's not just loving the wrong things, but loving the right things in the wrong way. It's not just desiring the wrong things, but it's desiring the right things more than we desire God. And it causes, in other words, our, our hearts, like Calvin said, are a factory of idols. We, we produce idols. Our hearts are, uh, desire the wrong things too much and the right things more than we desire God. And it brings us into captivity. It's, it's, it makes those things idols and it enslaves us to those idols. Um, Martin Luther said it in a different way. He said, talking about the Ten Commandments, that we don't break the other nine commandments unless we've already broken the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. When we break any of the other commandments, it's because we've already broken the first commandment. And at that moment, when we sin, when we break one of the other nine commandments, it's because we want, desire, and love something more than we want, desire, and love God. A classic example is, um, you know, one of the things that I struggle a bit with is um, um, sort of the approval of man. Now, the Bible clearly says that's wrong. You know, do not fear man, do not seek man's approval, but here I am, I struggle with it, okay? (laughs) And why do I struggle? What, What does it cause me to do? Sometimes it causes me to to tell lies. Because when someone asks me, you know, oh, Henny, by the way, did you remember to do that for me? Then I, my sort of people-pleasing, wanting the approval of man, idol sometimes kicks in, and I don't want to sort of make them feel let down. And then what do I do? I tell a lie. Oh, yes, yes, I was about to do it. You know, I'm almost, <laughs> I'm almost <laughs> finished with it. I was going to let you know. Don't judge me. You guys do the same. (laughs) And I cannot repent of my lying unless I... Because that that is sin. Lying is sin. But I can't repent of the, the sin of lying unless I can also repent of the sin underneath the sin, which is idolatry, which is wanting to please man too much. Idolizing the opinion of man. Otherwise, I'm going to repent of my lying, repent of my lying, but as long as that idol is there, the lying is just going to come back again because I'm dealing with the fruit, not with the root. 
Not only that, notice that this woman never gets named in this passage, or for that matter, in the next passage that we're going to look at where she's referred to. She doesn't get called Susanna or Martha or Mary, the mother of Zebedee's sons. She just gets called the mother of Zebedee's sons. In other words, her very identity was that she was a mother to these two boys. In other words, whatever you idolize becomes your identity. It becomes who you are. And in a very subtle but powerful way, Matthew is trying to show us that this woman's idolatry, her love for her sons, which was greater than her love for God, had become her very identity. It was who she was. That's how she saw herself, and that's how other people saw her. Whatever has the first place in our hearts determines our identities. It determines who we are. And the only way we can have a truly Christian identity is we put God in His right place above all else, and He determines who we are if he's on the highest place. And, and moms, isn't this easy to do? Don't you have compassion with this poor mother? <laughs> isn't it so easy to find your identity in your children? Isn't it so easy to become nothing more than a mother? Of course you have to be a good mother, and of course you have to love your children. I mean, the Bible makes that very clear. But isn't it easy for that to become so overwhelming that it overshadows everything else about you? And the sad reality is there are so many mothers who when their children leave the house, what happens? They have an identity crisis. It's like, who am I now? What am I now? What am I supposed to do now? Because I was just a mother. Because I idolized my children and they became not, I didn't just love them. I loved them more than God. They became my identity. Now that they've left the home, I don't know who I am anymore. And so often, the tragic story, and we've all seen this, is that when you idolize your children, you smother them. You don't mother them, you smother them. (laughs) And then they can't wait to get out of the house. And when they're out, they leave and they don't come back. They just just want, oh, freedom! You know, (laughs) I've got my space. Not this overbearing mother who... In other words, what, what I'm trying to say is, if you idolize your children, you won't be able to be a good mother to them. They won't experience you as a good mother. They'll experience you as overbearing and smothering. And they'll just want to get away from you because you pin all your hopes, all your dreams, all your happiness on them. When they do well, you feel good about yourself. When they don't do well, you like your life falls apart because your very life depends on your idol because you've built your, your life around it. And then, you know, they, they feel so smothered, they just leave, you know, and then your life falls apart because now they don't need me anymore. Now they don't want to be around me anymore. Now, obviously, it's under the best of circumstances, even if you had a healthy relationship with your children, when they leave, it's, it's sad, you know, and you miss them, and that's normal and that's right. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when you don't know who you are anymore when your children leave the house. When your life falls apart, when you're so devastated when your children leave and don't, you know, you know phone you every day, that, that your life falls apart, that you fall apart. Because that's what happens if you idolize your children. So, when, when, we, when we idolize something, number one, we'll use God as a means to an end to get that thing. Number two, we'll ask for that and we'll end up asking for the wrong things. When we idolize our children, we ask for the wrong things for them. Three, we'll find our identity in it. Um, But then also, notice, um, Jesus says, um, you don't know what you're asking for. Because they want to sit on on his left and on his right in his kingdom. Now, where does Jesus sit? When he he ascends into heaven, where, where where, where did Jesus go and sit down? At the right hand of the Father. So where was the Father sitting relative to Jesus? At, the, at Jesus' left hand. Okay, now, who knows God's not going to move? <laughs> right? 
He's not going to just because um, the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes and says, you know, scoot up, you know, I want my son to sit there, you know. He's going to move. He's sitting on the throne. He's not going to move. So that means Jesus is going to have to move, you know, so that James can sit at the Father's right hand, and then Jesus can sit at James's right hand, and then John can sit at Jesus' right hand. That's really what they're asking for, right? They don't realize it, but that's what they're asking for. They're wanting to replace Jesus. In fa- because, here's the thing, in their prayer they're wanting to replace Jesus because in their hearts they'd already replaced Jesus. Can you, can you see that? What is God and therefore idle in your heart you will eventually use to replace Jesus with? And that's why Jesus says, are you able to do what, <laughs> what I'm going to do? Can you see now why I ask that? You, you, want to, you want to be the Savior? You want to sit at the right hand of the Father? Then you need to be able to do what I'm going to do. And, and they are very confident. They still don't get it. Yes, we can. <laughs> you know, I wonder if Obama got his, you know, campaign slogan there. Yes, you can. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't do what Jesus is going to do. Because you don't know. You don't even realize what Jesus is going to do for you. And then Jesus says, no, actually, you will. You'll drink the cup that I'm going to drink. You're going to drink that cup of suffering. You're also going to suffer. And, and Acts chapter 12 tells us that, that James was actually killed with a sword. And John, church history tells us that, that John was later also killed. Um, so they did drink the cup. But their idolatry caused them to want to replace Jesus. Um, and then... It goes on to say, or Jesus goes on to say, if you idolize yourself or you idolize others, you're going to want to be served, not serve. But the Son of Man says, just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, what's a ransom? What's a ransom? Ransom, I'm sure you know, is a payment. You know, if someone gets abducted, you know, in our days, uh, you know, then the, the guys who abduct the person, you know, maybe a rich man's son or whatever, will ask for a ransom to be paid for that person to be set free. Now, in those days, a ransom was more specifically the payment that was made on the slave market for a slave to be bought and to be set free. And yet Jesus comes and he says, can you see how the, the, the theme of serving slavery and then how it is linked to idolatry and therefore we need to be bought free. In other words, what Jesus is really saying is that all of us who sin and who are sinners are, and he says it in, in John 8 in so many words, are slaves to our sin. You don't sin unless you are a slave to sin. And why are you a slave to sin? Because underneath that sin there's an idol that is enslaving you to that sin, that is holding you captive to that destructive behavior. Even if you want to let go of it, you, you struggle to and you cannot. Because there's an idol in your heart that holds you captive. That's your master. And that holds you captive to that sin. And Jesus says the only way out is if I pay a ransom. If I pay my life as a ransom for you to buy you free. In other words, he's saying that on the slave market of life, all of us have been sold to the highest bidder in a sense. And all of us are enslaved to something apart from Jesus. And even after we've been saved, let's be honest as Christians, we still struggle with this issue of idolatry in our hearts. Otherwise, we'd never sin. And we still need to be bought free. We need to be ransomed and bought free from our slavery, what enslaves us. And Jesus says, I give my life as a ransom, as the price that is paid on the slave market of life, to buy you and set you free from that which holds you captive, from the idols that take you captive. The second place in Matthew's Gospel where we find this woman mentioned is it says many women were there. That's at the cross now when Jesus was being crucified and when he was, um, when he was dying, when he was fulfilling what he promised. You know, that it, that it was giving his life a ransom for many. It says, many women were there, watching from a distance. They, were, they had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs, in other words, to serve him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, 
Mary, the mother of James, and Mary, uh, and, and sorry, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So she was there as well, the mother of Zebedee's sons. Notice how many mothers, by the way, are at the cross. You know, the people mentioned there, all of them are mothers. Okay? And, and, I, and I think, moms, you have a bit of an unfair advantage over the rest of us because, because you are mothers, you have an ability to understand something about Jesus' heart that for the rest of us is a bit more difficult. For you, it's maybe a bit more easy and intuitive to understand this aspect of Jesus' heart. Um, but notice she's there, and again, she's not referred to by name, but she's again referred to as the mother of Zebedee's sons. The identity she gets in her sons. In other words, here's what's happening. She comes finally before the cross of Jesus, where Jesus does for her, paying the ransom to buy you free from the enslavement of your idols. She comes before Jesus on the cross, but she comes as one who is enslaved. She comes as still the mother of Zebedee's son, finding her identity in her idols. She doesn't try and hide her idolatry. So often we come to, to Jesus and we try and put our best foot forward. And, and she's not doing that. She comes as she is. She comes as one finding her identity in her sons. And as that, she stands before the cross of Jesus. Real. And she says, Lord, I'm, I'm here. And by the way, I'm here without my sons. <laughs> she comes as one who has this problem has this identity in her sons in her heart, but she this time comes without her sons. She comes for herself. And that is where she gets set free. And here's the lesson we need to learn. Moms, unless you can come before Jesus, the one who buys you out of slavery at the cost of his life, first for yourself, you'll never be able to ask for the right things for your children. You'll always ask for the wrong things for your children. And what happens is, when we look at Jesus and we see what he has done for us, when we see the price he has paid for us, when we see how much it cost him to buy us out of slavery, then it reorders the loves, the disordered loves of our hearts. And it causes us to love him more than we love our idols. Think about this. She came before Jesus. She stood before the cross as the mother of Zebedee's sons, as someone who finds her identity in her sons, in her idols. And she realized that Jesus died for her, knowing the idolatry of her heart, knowing the sin of her heart, knowing that there was something that she loved more than him, and still he died for her. In other words, if we want to be free from our idols that keep us in captivity to our sins, we need to come before Jesus, stand like her before the cross, and see Jesus as the one who loved us so much that he died for us, knowing that there are things that we love more than we love him. Knowing that there are things that we regard in our hearts higher than we regard him. Knowing our sins. When Jesus died for us, he knew every sin, not only that we had committed, but that we still would commit. And still he died for us. And when we see him like that, the one who didn't come to be served, but to serve us, and serve us at the cost of his life, sacrifice his own life for us, to deliver us from the idols that keep us from loving him as much as we ought to. When we see him like that, all of a sudden he becomes more beautiful to us than our idols. He becomes more desirable to us than our idols. Our hearts, our cold hearts are melted and we love him more than we love anything else. And that sets us free from our idols and enables us to walk then into freedom from our sins, from those sins that keep us captive. Can you see that? Can you see how the gospel makes you a better mother or father 
or son or daughter. Because remember, Jesus was also the ultimate husband and the ultimate son who didn't want to be served, but who served. So, um, you know, we live in a world that is like Lord Farquaad. You remember Lord Farquaad from Shrek? (laughs) There's this beautiful scene that is, you know, theologically so rich. where Shrek and Donkey march into the stadium and they're having like a battle, you know, between, you know, knights and so on to decide who, you know, whoever wins the fight will have the, the, the honor and the privilege of representing Lord Farquhar to go and find his um, damsel in distress and, and, and deliver her from the dragon who's keeping her captive. And then he makes the speech and he says, Some of you may die. <laughs> But that's a price I'm willing to pay. (laughs) And that's the world we live in. That's what Jesus says. The rulers of the Gentiles, the great ones, lord it over them. They exercise authority. They want to be served rather than to serve. They want to be sacrificed for rather than to sacrifice. And here's the thing. Mothers, you know this. You know this. You're going to have to serve so much that it will get you down eventually. It will discourage you. It will make you bitter. It will make you hard. It will disappoint you. Because the people you serve inevitably won't be as thankful as they ought to be. And what's more than that, you won't be able to serve them as well as you ought to, or you feel you ought to. So you'll get discouraged. Unless you have someone who is serving you more than you're serving other people. Unless you have someone who is sacrificing more for you than you are sacrificing for others. It'll break you. It'll crush you. And what this text is saying to us is Jesus is that one. And all of us have to go out into this world to be like Jesus, to serve rather than be served. But until we come to Jesus and allow him to serve us with his love, we will not be able to serve in that way. Unless we are loved like this by him and bought by him, and unless we continue to be bought by him out of slavery to these idols that keep us captive and that lord it over us, we will not have the ability to serve the way that he served. And I want to invite all of you, mothers first and foremost, but, but everyone else as well, to come and stand at the foot of the cross of Jesus. As you are. And admit to him, Lord, I'm finding my identity in something else. There's, there are other things that I actually love more than you, and that's why I keep going back to those things and holding on to those things. That's why I can't get free of this sin. But then look up at him and say, Lord, I need you to ransom me. And it's interesting, that word ransom, usually, because it says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Whenever that, the word ransom is used with, with many or with multiple people, it's always used in the plural, ransoms, plural, for many. But here it's used in the singular because Jesus gives his life, one life, for many lives. And that should tell us how much Jesus' life is worth. That his life, which he sacrificed on the cross, was so great, so amazing, that it was enough to pay for all the other lives of all the people that ever lived. And when we see Jesus as that valuable then we will put him first. We'll be able to put him first in our hearts and overcome all these little sins and be set free from all these things that keep us in bondage. Um, in the Old Testament and in the times of, of, of the Old Testament and in, in the times when Jesus lived, you know, in the Greco-Roman world, you know, slavery was a big thing. And anyone... Any mother who was a slave 
When children were born to her, those children were also automatically slaves. Spiritually, that is also so. Whatever enslaves you, if you don't deal with it, if you don't allow Jesus to ransom you from it, your children will be born into that same slavery. But for the grace of God, of course, God by his grace will set your children free as well. Even if you don't get free, um, you'll often set your children free. But do you want your children to be born into that slavery? Or do you want them to be free of it? The battles that you don't fight against the slave masters who oppress you, your children are most likely going to have to fight against those same slave masters. So I just want you to close your eyes now. And if there's sort of any idolatry in your heart, anything that, that the Holy Spirit has revealed to you, that you regard higher than Jesus, that you love more than God, that you find your identity in, that you hope for, that you feel you cannot live without. I just want you to respond and just bring it before the Lord by name. Say, Lord, I bring this before you and I realize it's, it's more important to me than it ought to be. It's actually enslaving me. Ransom me, Jesus. Just ask him to ransom you from it right now. Maybe you're understanding your heart for the first time and understanding why you have struggled with this captivity, why you've struggled with all those negative emotions. Why what, you know, in the case of mothers, what happens to your children has such a disproportionate effect on you, such a devastating effect. It's not just that you feel good about yourself and you feel you make it in life when they do well but you're absolutely devastated, absolutely destroyed when, when anything goes wrong and, and you, you realize that your feelings towards them is disp- are disproportionate because maybe your love for them is greater than your love for Jesus. And this morning the good news is that Jesus wants to come and reorder the loves, the affections of your heart. There's a famous, you know, the Puritans lived in the 17, 16, 17, 1800s. And there's a famous Puritan sermon called the expulsive power of a new affection. You cannot remove an old affection. You can only displace it. If there are things in your life that you love too much by loving them more than God, you cannot just remove them. You've got to replace them. And the only thing you can replace them with is Jesus. The one who loves you more than you love yourself. The one who loves you more than any idol you can ever choose will love you. The one who can take care of you and fulfill all those empty promises those idols make. Him. Loving Him will remove the the old loves from your heart. So if you need prayer, just, just come forward and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray with you um, and for you. Let's just close our eyes. Lord God, we come before you, Lord God, all of us, Lord, as captives, slaves. Lord, we confess, Lord, as as parents, Lord, we usually don't even love our children too much, but sometimes we do love them more than we love you. And, And we just repent of that, Lord. Sometimes we love our jobs 
more than you. Sometimes we love comfort more than we love you. Sometimes we love security more than we love you. Sometimes we love friends or people's opinions more than we love you. Sometimes we love ourselves more than we love you. And we just come before you, Jesus. And like James and John's mother, we want to stand before you, Jesus, at the foot of the cross, and we want to look up to you and see how much you love us. And we want your love for us to melt our hearts until there is nothing we love more than we love you. Lord, and we realize we, sit, we live in a, in a city that loves all kinds of things more than it loves you. And that because of that, the people of the city are in captivity to those idols. And we pray, Lord, that, we'll, that you'll send us out of here with this message of freedom. And that we'll be able to go out and say, if you love Jesus above all else, you'll be more free than if you love other things more than him. Lord, we, we, just, we just bring ourselves before you and we pray that we'll be a community, Lord. Lord, not like your disciples were when they quarreled about who was the greatest and who must sit at your right hand and your left, but who you ultimately made your disciples, Lord, that we'll be a community who loves you above all else, a community that wants to serve rather than be served and a, world, a community that's willing to give their lives like you gave your life for us. Make us such a community. Make us a community that is more free than any other community in the city so that people can look at us and say, I want to be like that. I want to be that free. And help us, each one of us, as we live in the freedom that you give us, and people ask us about it to say, yes, it's because Jesus loved me and gave his life for me. It's because Jesus ransomed me. I was a slave, but Jesus bought me free from the slave market of life. And now I am gladly enslaved to him. Lord, I just pray that over each one of us, Lord. I pray that this morning, Lord, as we see our own hearts and as we repent of the idols of our own hearts that you will set us free ransom us free in a way that will cause us to really be more free than we ever were before in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good for more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.